Hello, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. I'm your host, Justin, and we are going to wrap up the year in a little bit of a different way. We're going to do a three-parter, and that three-parter is going to be about HVAC history and systems. We're going to start with air conditioning. While it's cold, I know, but we'll start with air conditioning, then we'll talk about heating. Then after that, we're going to talk about future state for both of those and how they affect these things. I think this is an important thing for the whole housing sector because of two things. One is how much it's allowed housing to develop into places that it couldn't otherwise develop. And the other one is how expensive repairs on these systems can be. That's the one that usually hits our um, owners a lot harder is, is the cost of taking care of these systems. So when you get an HVAC call in the middle of summer and they're super busy, it can be several hundred dollars just to have somebody come look at it. They'll layer some of those costs into the repairs but one of the things we found is that if we have internal maintenance guys go out and check it first, if it's something as simple as a blown fuse or capacitor or uh, something minor that needs reset, it's much more cost effective to have those eyes on it first. So that, that's just an example of why this whole story is important. But we're going to tell this story in a way that kind of highlights what a profound effect it's had on modern life. And then we're going to take those ideas and expand them onto what we can do to prepare for the future of modern life. Because modern life in 50 years will be much different than it is now. And a lot of that stuff is happening right now behind the scenes. So we'll bump into those pieces of science and all that too. Um, we're going to layer in transportation of food. We're going to layer in transportation of ice itself because that's where this all starts. And kind of get into how HVA systems kind of change the world. So the first thing to talk about is the origination of stuff like cold food and ice and refrigeration, because that's where all this stuff comes from. So it goes, it goes way, way, way back. There's evidence of early civilizations using several different methods to keep food cool, to keep, to create ice. They, they dig uh, narrow channels and then fill them with water. And in the morning, they'd be ice if it froze overnight, all kinds of stuff that goes back really, really far. But for us, we're just going to talk about a discussion of ice in the very early, early 1800s. Um, even earlier than that, for sure. But ice in the early 1800s was super important for food preservation. And to get ice at that time, you had to farm ice, which means that there were people up in, in Canada and in northern states in New York and Buffalo, and they'd farm ice, load it onto barges in the Mississippi, and bring it down to the Gulf where they delivered to places like Florida and Texas. There were a lot of different ways to get that ice and move it around. But while we were kind of conquering the West and kind of leading into, you know, well, we, we had a civil war a little bit later. So this is pre-civil war. We're kind of, that's our main channel for ice is the coast and the Mississippi are the two ways that you get ice from the north down to the south. Now, the second part of that is storing that ice. Most of the time they would take that ice and they take it to an ice house. And the early ice houses were not creating ice. They were just storing the ice and they'd dig down and they'd have to clear the frost line, if it's a place that froze, or they'd have to clear, stay above the water line. There, there's all these different ways that they did it, but they'd have to store this these blocks of ice. 
So they'd lose a bunch of ice in transport because it melted. They'd lose ice in storage. So they had to move monumental qualities of quantities of this stuff down to put into storage and save for when they needed it to take care of the food. The development of ice boxes, which are the old school refrigerators where you have an ice cube, literally an ice cube on top, and then all of your milk and cheeses and things and vegetables, meats that need to stay cold below it, um, relied heavily on these ice houses that stored the ice to bring a new chunk every week or so to put in the top of the ice box and then it'd slowly melt and drip out the back. Um, eventually they did stuff where they had a fan. So it was actually circulating the cold air instead of just relying on the fact that ice goes down and heat rises. So those ice boxes were becoming more and more important to the way of life and the way that people were living. But the actual origin of air conditioning and refrigeration, it comes in in a kind of interesting way. The guy that really solves this problem is Dr. John Gorey, and he's a guy living in Florida. Now, there's an existing patent from 1835, but it's a patent on the gas compression cycle. It's, they never made a working machine. They could never quite figure out how to keep it, keep the pressures up. John Gorey, though, was sitting there and he's looking at the problem of malaria and yellow fever and kind of the diseases that were affecting people down around the Gulf Coast where there's swampy areas and a lot of mosquitoes. And one of the things that you have to remember about this time is that science was not super advanced on the medicine front. Malaria actually means bad air, malaria. It means bad air because they thought people were sick from bad air. They didn't recognize that the source was mosquitoes. So he's looking at this and he's trying to figure out how to cure the yellow fever slash malaria that's happening. And one of the things he wanted to do was go, cool, we need to drain the swamps because the swamps are causing humidity and that's bad air. And then we want to cool the sick rooms. We wanted better air in there. And what he'd do is he'd put ice in a basin and hang it from the ceiling. Uh, cool air would flow down from that and it would keep the patients cooler. And so this, these fevers he was trying to break, he thought cooler would help. Um, he noticed that the ice was really expensive, a pain in the butt to get because it was coming from so far away. And so to be able to produce enough ice, because he's, he's literally melting blocks of ice in a sick room. So he's going through a ton of ice. So he goes, okay, I think I know how to solve this problem. And he was granted a patent for an ice-making machine that he created in the early 1850s. In 1851, he gets this patent. And the patent literally uses a horse on a treadmill to compress gases and start a compression cycle that cools water to freezing and make blocks of ice. And he's making blocks of ice about the size of a brick with a horse and a machine the size of an outhouse. It's, it's a big machine. And that'll make you a, a block of ice every couple hours. And so he's able to make ice and have it, if it's running continuously, he's making a decent amount of ice to do it for his, his project. And he starts recognizing that there's additional benefits to this. And so he goes into business with a partner and they set out to try and really commercialize this ice making machine, which if you think about it is just 
an overcomplicated refrigerator, well, an undercomplicated refrigerator because it's just doing the simple, simple things. It's also a very undercomplicated air conditioning unit. It's just conditioning water right now instead of air. But that water is being used to condition the air. So it's like an air conditioning unit with extra steps. Um, he was unable to capitalize, and there's reasons for that. His partner died, which doesn't help. And then there was this patent in England and Scotland for the gas compression cycle from 1835 that never really was made. It never took off. It was never really used. It was just patented. So he ended up financially ruined, and he died in 1855. So at the same time he's doing this, um, so here's something to say about these patents too, is there's, there's a point in time where patents are just popping up that are extremely similar in different countries. And they're popping up because we're hitting the point in technology where earlier things can be realized as actual machines. And a lot of patent systems require a working machine at this time to be patented, exceptions being England, Scotland, and a couple other places. But in Australia, there is a guy, James Harrison, and he's the first successful ice capitalist. He made a commercial ice-making machine in 1854 and got a patent in Australia in 1855. It was very similar to the other ideas. It used ether. It compressed the gas and then cooled it by expansion. But his machine could make 6,600 pounds of ice in a day. That's a lot of 12-pound bags. That's, that's quite a few. Uh, it's quite a bit more than you'll see in front of your normal 7-Eleven or Walmart or uh, grocery store. It's, it's a lot of ice. And he's making this as a commercial venture because at this point, Australia is, doesn't have really a lot of places you can get ice at all. They're importing it and they're sailing ice over to come over to um, Australia. So it's more of a novelty than a useful thing until he starts making ice every day. He does really, really well. He has a couple of failed ventures, but he generally does pretty well. So around that time, around you know the 1860s, um, the Civil War kind of upsets everything in the United States. Um, other countries go on, and there are many other successful ice-making machines. There are um, many countries that now start successfully manufacturing ice, and so ice manufacturing becomes almost normalized by the turn of the century. So at this point, people are used to having ice, used to having ice boxes. They're pretty prevalent. And then a different problem needs solving. So in Buffalo, New York in 1902, there's a publishing company who has issues with the print quality. The reason they're having issues with the print quality is that the paper that they're using expands and contracts due to the change in humidity in the room and the pressure of the printing process. So when you're doing printing and you're doing color printing, you're taking that same piece of paper to different machines. And so printing colors became very difficult as you couldn't keep the piece of paper square under the print. So they called a guy who was an engineer and hired him. His name's Willis Carrier, which his last name probably sounds familiar to anybody that's ever shopped for HVAC products. So Willis Carrier, this engineer, he's tasked with solving this issue. And this, this machine that he makes and installs is really considered the birth of air conditioning in large part because it adds humidity control. So his mechanism could control temperature, control humidity, control air circulation and ventilation, 
and cleanse the air. And that was just by putting a filter in line. That wasn't hugely important, but it's one of the things that they integrated into it. So now I'm going to do a little bit of a, a, a quote before we get on into uh, commercial level air conditioning. So um, Carrier was granted a patent for an apparatus for treating air in 1906, the world's first spray type air conditioning equipment. It could humidify or dehumidify air and heat water for the first and cooler for the second. So that was solving the problem that he really had at the printing press, right? So in 1906, Carrier discovered that constant dew point depression provided practically constant relative humidity. That's a weird term and it sounds uh, weather manny, and it kind of is. So the dew point depression is the difference between the temperature it is and the temperature at which dew forms. And so you use that, you can figure out how much humidity there is and how much humidity you're going to pop out. Uh, there's a term for it among air conditioned engineers called the law of constant dew point depression. So what they're trying to do there is kind of make sure the humidity is a constant. So Carrier per presented a document called the rational psychrometric formula. It tied together the concepts of relative humidity, absolute humidity, and dew point temperature. And it made it possible to design air conditioning to fit the requirements at hand. So it can look at what the temperature and humidity are normally and respond to those to properly cool the air. It's, it's really smart stuff. He deserves his accolades. Carrier does well, and then he does poorly because there's a Great Depression in 1929. But generally, the reason the Carrier name is still around is because it's attached to all this like important work around air conditioning. He's, he's really ahead of the curve on this and has established a lot of things that are still extremely, extremely relevant. So the big introduction to the public of air conditioning now, instead of just humidity control, ice hanging from the ceiling, but actually moving air around and controlling the humidity and temperature happens at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904. This is the first time the public really has access to just show up and see what air conditioning would be like. So this is from the history of air conditioning. Uh, at the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904, organizers used mechanical refrigeration to cool the Missouri State Building. The system used 35,000 cubic feet of air per minute to cool the 1,000-seat auditorium, the rotunda, and other rooms within the Missouri State Building. It was the first time the American public was uh, exposed to the concept of comfort cooling. A big breakthrough in comfort cooling came in the 1920s when Americans flocked to movie theaters to watch Hollywood stars on the silver screen. So... Stepping out of this quote for a minute, what's crazy here is that one of the big things that this is tied to is the step up from flickers and old school movies to actual movie theaters, movie theaters that are owned by the studios producing the films, and they come out with these, and early and back to the quote, Early cooling systems for public theaters were essentially heating systems modified with refrigeration equipment that distributed cold air through floor vents. So it resulted in hot, muggy conditions at upper levels and much colder temperature at lower levels, where patrons sometimes resorted to wrapping their feet with newspapers to stay warm. In 1922, Carrier Engineering Corporation installed the first well-designed cooling system for theaters at the Metropolitan Theater in Los Angeles, and it pumped cool air through higher vents for better humidity control and comfort through the building. The next step in this is in May 1922 at Rivoli Theater in New York. Carrier publicly debuted a new type of system that used a centrifugal chiller. It had fewer moving parts and compressor stages than existing units. 
The breakthrough system increased the reliability and lowered the cost of large-scale air conditioners, greatly expanding their use throughout the country. So the first place, like many things of this size, you see all of this happening is at commercial scale, is at warehouse scale, is at a scale that you're not normally going to be able to afford and buy at home. And most of these systems are using ether as the gas. And most of us have not been exposed to ether, but I will say that ether is problematically very, very flammable. So it kind of made for a dangerous system to sit over there and try and keep you cool. Eventually, CFCs were um, discovered and synthesized, and those were used for quite a while until it was recognized their role in affecting the ozone layer. And those kind of got phased out, and then we had HFCs. And those have gotten phased out. And there's continually new research on alternatives to the compression gas, the compression expansion gas. And that shift continues to move towards better for the environment, more sustainable kind of gases. But they also layer in efficiency because a lot of these are now being rated as more efficient, better for your energy bill, and also better at cooling. So this creates this run where all of a sudden we're getting to the point where air conditioners are more affordable than ever. And it starts to really pick up in the late 50s. And then by the 60s, just every home that's being built, most of them have air conditioning. Air conditioning leads to this ability to live in places we couldn't live before. So in the 60s, you see this population boom in Arizona and Florida. Places you couldn't really live before, but because of air conditioning, you can. Florida has plenty of fresh water, but Arizona, this is when we start to hit an inflection point where Arizona's negotiated water rights for the Colorado start to strip out. So this will come into play later, and we'll talk a little bit about how Arizona is, is complicated in this space. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Nevada has that same expansion. It happened much later. Uh, Nevada's population boom didn't happen in the 60s. Well, it, it did, but it was never very populous. It really happens later on than that. So as of today, air conditioning is now in over 100 million homes. It's estimated 87% of all households, according to the Energy Information Administration. Beyond that, almost any office you go to work in is going to have air conditioning. They have big units on the roof, malls are air-conditioned, Walmarts are air-conditioned. Everything has climate control. We now are a population that expects to be comfortable when we're out in public. So that's the story of AC, but how does it hit on these issues for homeowners, landlords, renters? I mean, it's cool, but yeah, what else? Well, there are many factors that go into the longitude of a house and how long it's a viable place to live. There are homes in California, Arizona, and the drier areas that are super old and nearly original because there's not humidity to mess with all of the wood that's in there. Being able to have AC on there, it can be argued, allows for a house that has greater longevity because of the environment it's in. Not because of the environment inside of it, that's for the people. But the environment that the product is actually in extends the life of the home. 
It's not in a place where it rains a bunch. It's not in a place where you get a lot of ice and snow. It's not in a place where there's humidity. And it's not in the place where there's enough moisture to really sustain the predatory animals that would come in and kind of live in your home and, and bats and rats and bugs and badgers. They're still there, but not as many. Termites are still an issue. They're going to be. Um, the other effect it has is on where single-family rental investments and apartment rental investments have occurred. It is extremely easy to build in Arizona. You can build in Arizona year-round. That means that as a developer, when you're looking at where to go, you can only develop in Chicago, in Buffalo, in Montana, in Washington, certain times of year. And other times of year, it's much more difficult from snow, in Washington from rain. And there's all these, these factors that play into that. Southern California, Arizona, Utah in some parts, New Mexico, you really have an ease of building. So you have this huge property boom that really lends to these giant rental areas. This allows for that expansion of population. The other side of this that we're only going to talk about briefly is the transport of food to these areas. So if you're living in a place where it's desert and not much grows, while there are some animals that can live there and survive and do well, it's very labor intensive to kind of keep them alive and keep them full of food and not dying from the heat. So transporting food to these areas is only possible in refrigerated trucks. Refrigerated trucks bringing food to these areas allows for the places that are good at growing food, food, the Central Valley, the Great Plains. There's a whole bunch of area in Imperial County and in Nevada that are used for growing food. And then we can move that food around and get it to places where there are now massive numbers of homes and rentals because of AC. So that all stacks up and kind of sets up for where we're at now, where there is a giant developing population in Arizona, giant developing population in Nevada. Southern California is still, you know, so many people want to live there and there's so little housing. So as we're looking at these, these places and how populous they are, part of the reason that occurred is because of air conditioning. So I'm going to leave it at that for today. Um, the expansion of all these ideas is going to happen in the third episode because next week we're going to talk about heating and then once we have those two things well in hand, we'll talk about the future states. Because in the future state, a lot of these things kind of intertwine and become a much more robust temperature management system rather than a heating, venting, and air conditioning, which is what HVAC normally stands for. There's a lot of neat stuff happening in that area that we'll get into and talk about in heating next week. And then in two weeks, we'll talk about the future of all this, which is super cool. Uh, for now, if any of you guys need property management services, feel free to find us at poplar.home slash POD. Again, that's poplar.home slash POD. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and we will talk next week. Bye-bye.